Father, it's so good to come this morning just again expressing our dependence and need for you. And that's been demonstrated this last week. We thank you for the rain that you sent to water the earth and to uh, remind us again of your power at work. We see you providing for us through the water cycle and just the way with <clears throat> we didn't have water wouldn't be able to even live and you grant that generously and we're thankful for the many many ways you do provide for us and we pray this morning you provide for us for our inner man as well that our soul will be fed and encouraged and edified today and corrected where needed and directed as well direct us in the path of love as we dig deeper into first corinthians 13. holy spirit pray that you would minister to each one here as they have need today you know those <coughs> needs and we pray you would uh, minister to each one from your word pray this in your powerful name christ amen so we are going through the 15 different descriptions of love in first corinthians 13 we're looking at three of them specifically today and i think we'll get through this this lesson and next week hopefully we'll finish up the remaining six um, might be an adventure, but we'll, we'll go for it. So today we're going to be talking about love does not seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not irritable. And love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So I really hope today that you're um, convicted. But I hope you don't stay there, like <coughs> feel bad. And guilty, it's not hard for any of us to understand how the Word can convict us and bring us to a place of guilt. But it also brings us to a place, well, this is how you should live. This is how Christ lives and lived. This is how you should live. So that's the vision we want to put forward is to have the same love that God has, the same love that Christ has, not just to remain in, oh, I'm blowing it here. That's Hopefully you can recognize that and then Okay, what is the way forward? I read this week out of, out of Wayne Mack's book, which I, I really have been enjoying, A Maximum Impact. And he talked about Robert Murray McShane. And he said a description of his life was written by somebody who wrote a biography of him, was, was characterized by faithfulness to the <coughs> Word of God with tenderness for the souls of men. Now that's really a good description of us as biblical counselors, us as those of we who are in the community of Christ, that we're faithful to the Word of God, but we have a tenderness of tenderness for the souls of men. And that's who he was. And I think that's what 1 Corinthians 13 does. It predisposes us to really having a tenderness towards others as we, as we look into that. So let's look at perfection number seven, love does not seek its own. Uh, Wayne Mack calls this the seeking not its own lifestyle. So you can adopt that as the seeking not its own lifestyle. That's the kind of lifestyle we should lead. lead. But some other translations of that, it does not insist on its own way. It does not demand its own way, New Living Translation. Holman says love is not selfish. Uh, the NR, the uh, NIV says it does not look out for its own interest. That's the reader's version of the NIV. And it does not seek its own benefit. Uh, it does not seek its own benefit. 
in relation to just itself. It seeks the benefit of others. So this is an easy one and you can answer it. It's not like it's, who is an unloving person looking out for? Himself, yeah, yeah. I know that's a simple question, but it's just to be reminded. Yeah, I'm unloving when I'm looking out for myself only. Who's a loving person look out for? Others. Others, yeah. And it really is that simple. It really is that simple. Are we looking out for the benefit of ourselves, or are we also looking out for the benefit of others? read this in Wayne Mack's book, The Principle. This is from James Montgomery Boyce. The principle that Paul is stating here is one that's found throughout the New Testament. The unbeliever naturally puts himself first, the other second, and God last. He may think he merits that order, but the Bible teaches that we should reverse the series. God is to be first, others must be second, and we must come last. And he gives some scriptures here, which you might want to write these down in your notes that are, that are just other scriptures that bear this out. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 and 22, For though I am free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all. So Paul says, I have made myself a servant unto all. That I may gain the more. What was that? What was that first Corinthians. First Corinthians nine verses nineteen and twenty-two. Thank you. I have made all things to all men that I by might by all means save some. In Romans twelve ten, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. It's Romans twelve ten, and then in Romans fifteen one through two. I find this verse, these two verses interesting because we're, we're told we're not to be men-pleasers. There are exceptions to that. So here's Romans 15, 1 through 2. We, we then are that are strong enough to bear with the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves. So there are times when we prefer others. We're actually pleasing them. We're preferring them. Not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So those are four other verses that really bring into uh, perspective the Scripture's stance on preferring others, loving others, not seeking your own interest, but the interest of others. Whose interest was Christ looking out for? He was looking out for God's interest. Anybody else? Yeah, and kind. I think maybe somebody was saying that Philippians passage, but you can look at Philippians 2. And let's just turn there, actually. Let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses uh, 3 and 4. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So really, the role of humility, which is what Nate's going to be preaching on today, in love is, is brought into focus here. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, the next few verses, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider Robert to be equal to God and made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That was Christ taking into account the interest of others to benefit them, not to benefit himself, but to benefit others. The kind of love, Wayne Max says, the kind of love that will honor God and make us powerful influence, make us a powerful influence for Christ and the lives of others, is a love that will not seek its own nor insist on its own way. <coughs> seek its own means that the loveless person desires to have his or her own way. In other words, selfish love, which is an oxymoron. It says that it's my way or the highway. Selfishness seeks the things that belong to oneself, one's own pleasure, profit, honor, etc. Whereas genuine agape love is always unselfish. I like this quote by Linsky. Selfishness lies at the root of a thousand evils and sins in the world and in the church between rich and poor, capital and labor, nation and nation, man and man, church member and church member. Cure self selfishness and you plant a garden of Eden. I kind of like that statement. It's a good word <laughs> picture. You cure selfishness and you have a you have a you have a wonderful place to live. When one draws a beautiful face and makes one feature after another stand out until the eyes at last light up the whole and give it complete expression. So in this portrait of love, the inspired artist paints the eyes full of unselfishness, seeking in every glance not their own, but that which is another's. Yes, this is love, no envy, no boasting, no pride, no unseemliness, because it's altogether unselfish. Not for self, but for others. And he makes a comment in our context that the church at Corinth was rife with this sin for they were selfish in extreme. They're not sharing their food and love feasts. They're protecting their rights, even suing fellow believers in a non-Christian setting and using their spiritual gifts not to benefit others, but their own advantage. They did not use their gifts to edify or build up the church, but to try to build themselves up and thus Paul was forced to exhort them. So use gifts to build up others, love others. So I think it's good because Paul goes to the negative here. Like, what is the positive side? So that's why I like to look at the opposites or the antonyms. So what would be some opposites of a selfish, self-centered, self-seeking person? What would be some words that you would use? Ananias and Sapphira. They, wanted, they were selfishly wanting yeah. accolades that Barnabas got. Mm-hmm. That's a Are good example. Antonyms. That's not the opposite, yeah. though. That's the it's same as selfish. They were selfish. Oh! I said opposite, but oh! I'm using that. I'm it's turning that around. That's the same. 
<laughs> you threw Barnabas in there, okay. Carol. Barnabas, yeah. Let's, let's go with Barnabas. <laughs> Good relievers in here. They came in. <laughs> you guys are so good. <laughs> well, we're trying to practice First Corinthians 13. <laughs> they're they're learning. But you said Barnabas. You yeah, used Hananias and Sapphira as a negative, but Barnabas sold land. In fact, it sounds like a lot of the early church people, the rich ones anyway, were selling land and helping out those who lost jobs in their probably lost their livelihoods because of their conversion. But what are some words you guys would use? Giving. Giving to others. Giving. Giving. Yeah. Selfless. Uh, we're talking about selfish. We can turn that around and say a selfless person. Sacrificial. Sacrificial. Serving instead of wanting to be served. Mm-hmm. Serving person. Yeah. Generous. <clears throat> generous. Yeah, I think it's a really good one. A generous person. Charitable. Grateful. Graceful. Good. Humble. 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 <laughs> Benevolent. I think is a, another word we put there in there. Magnanimous. So love is selfless. Love is sacrificial. Love is serving. Love is generous. Love is charitable. Love is magnanimous. And one thing I've, I've really enjoyed about Wayne Mack's book is he gives some practical illustrations of, of what, what that looks like. So what does this kind of love look like for us in actual practice? Loving God and others with a love that doesn't seek its own means that we will be willing to make costly sacrifices for God and for people. It means that we doesn't seek its own means that we'll be willing to do what the Good Samaritan did in Luke chapter 10. You guys know what he did. He put the guy up overnight and took care of his needs. Loving God and others with a love that doesn't seek its own means that we will not be opportunistic or manipulative. It means we will not operate out of a get, give to get philosophy, which I think can be common, like I'm giving because I know I'm going to get back or try to get back. It means that we will attempt to see things from the other person's point of view and frequently be willing to submit when there's a disagreement, unless to do so would be harmful for the other person or the cause of Christ. I'll read a few more here. It means that we'll be willing to help other people in those areas where they want help and in the way that they want to be helped. It means we'll be willing to give other people our undivided attention when they want to talk. That's kind of hard to do sometimes. It means that we will be willing to allow others to do things differently than we do without judging or condemning them. <coughs> Loving God and others with a love that doesn't seek its own means it will be the first and perhaps the last, to ask for forgiveness. It means we will not get, ups get upset if someone else is honored or gets the credit for what we have done. That one might be tough to do. 
Loving God and others with a love that doesn't seek its own means that we'll be willing to do what is beneficial for other people even though it's hard and costly for us. I think that's about most of them. Loving God and others with a love that doesn't seek its own means that we'll not be mainly concerned about the me and mine concerns of life, which I think we can all get wrapped up in. So practical illustrations of how we can love others with a love that does not seek its own. Any other thoughts on not seeking our own kind of love? What do you think the biggest objection to that is? Like our biggest hurdle to overcome that? I can think of one is What is it? If if I do that, people are gonna take advantage of me. Yeah. That's right. it. He had a list of those in here somewhere and I don't know if I can lay my eyes on it, but that was number one right there. So who's gonna take care of me? I'm I'm gonna get taken advantage right, of. Right, so we just we just trust the Lord for that. And then are there some instances where people do take advantage of that? Is that okay to let them do that? Or is there a limit to, I don't know, I'm just, Paul didn't I'm not, I, agree with, I agree with everything yeah. you said. I'm not trying to object to it. I just, that thought came into my head. I think it's the other side of it. <clears throat> okay, like Friday morning men's Bible study, if you ask the question, and you get the first chance to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> do, how, how far do you go, David? What do you think? I mean, I think there's a limit to what you can do. And if you're enabling somebody, maybe, with your generosity or um, time, then that's probably not loving them that way because it's, it's a crutch that they're not mm-hmm. doing on their own. Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah, I think. I can't it, think of another reason, but is that maybe I don't know. But for argument's sake, is it a seventy or a seven times seventy thing? Well, the other thing is teaching the person to fish instead of just continuing to give, giving them a chance to, you know, I just think about that. That people that are needy, maybe you need to help them learn to, to fish. Like yeah, I think you have to bring out, like you said. That you don't want to enable people. So, like, if yeah, you're helping somebody who has come into some ways that, out of their own, not out of their own uh, making, lost their job or whatever, and you come in and you assist them, you would be enabling them if you continually provide for them, and they're over here disobeying clear scripture, which Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, so there, there can, there's a line in there somewhere where, like, there is a limit. Because this person at some point could become dependent upon you and disobedient to scriptures, not providing for their very own. So it's all got to be balanced in. All scriptures have to be brought together. Uh, you may start out loving somebody by helping them and end up needing to correct them as well and um, encourage them to be obedient to scripture. Anybody else thoughts on that? A very good question. An illustration of that when. They're talking about how to care for the widows in the church. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he starts to say who should and shouldn't be taken care of by the church because there are other resources. And that's another thing to think of. There is a finite number of resources. If you're dumping all your resources into one, you know, that maybe, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you need to be wise in discerning how to do that um, as a church. And then I think sometimes people can demand that you give them all of your resources, which is also not good. Yeah. There's some really good principles in that scripture you're talking about, Heather. There's kind of like an age, like 60 years and older, and it talks about the family should be taking care of them if possible, not making them dependent on the church. So all those things need to be brought in. Like if this person you're helping has family, who should be helping? There's a principle that I think Alan Muller talks a lot about called subsidiarity, you know, where you take care of your own first mm -hmm. in that way that you can before you start appealing to the broader, you know, your mm -hmm. home first, you know, then your mm -hmm. church and your community yeah. and whatnot. I don't know if we answered your question or not. I think so. I mean, there's, you can't overextend yourself and obviously money, you only have so much of it. Time, you only have so much of it. Mm -hmm. so, I guess wisdom involved in how you deal those things out there. Yep. A lot of wisdom involved. Change. I think maybe tied into that. If you love like this, you're going to get hurt. Not every outcome is going to be positive, and we're not responsible for the outcome. We're responsible for being faithful. So. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. If you love like this, you are going to get used mm -hmm. at times, and that's where that's where the true motive and the true love comes in. It's like, are you going to keep a record of that, which comes along a little bit later, or just like here I am. I'm I'm not my own. Use me, so. Yeah, it's a good point. And not begrudge the person if they are if they end up making you feel like you've been used. Well, and see how Christ balanced time to himself to recharge with God. I mean, there was a balance there. Um, he was obviously giving, 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 and self-sacrificing. But there was a balance in that he took care of his spiritual needs and got away mm -hmm. and got the disciples away. So you really, in order to be fully productive, you have to look to Christ for both of those and look for mm -hmm. the wisdom to know. Yeah, one of the texts, I think it's the New King James, talks about not looking out for just your own interest, but the interest of others. So it seems to indicate you're supposed to look out for your own interest. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a word that's become really popular, and I've got some issues with it in the biblical counseling movement, is self-care. Like, you can get too far down that road. You can also be too far the other way, and I think that's what you're talking yeah. about, Ruth, is striking a good balance there. It's like you are to take care of yourself. You are to take care of those around you. But I think we all, we all know the Holy Spirit's very kind in showing us this is an area where I, can, I, I really do need to put other person's interests first. I need to do something that's for their benefit, not for my own. And the spirits in your life, I think he gives good direction in that. Helps us find wisdom. Okay, that is the big objection right there. Nobody will take care of me or I'll get taken advantage of. And yeah, we will get taken advantage of. That's the time. <coughs> I'm sure that should not stop us. Perfection number eight, love is not provoked. Wayne Mack says, being irritable is more than a trait, it's a sin. So I like the way he says that, like, some people almost, 
like it's kind of um, cool to be a little bit edgy or irritable, or I guess. Like that's just who I am, kind of thing. But no, it's not a trait, it's actually a sin. So ESV says it's not irritable. J.B. Phillips says it's not touchy, and the reader's version of NIV says it does not easily become angry. What are some other words you would come up with when you think of somebody who's um, easily provoked, that's irritable? What are some other words you would come up with? Moody. Moody. Yeah. <laughs> Also socially acceptable. Yeah, it is. High strung. Yeah, go there. Short fused. Short fused. Yeah. Surly. Yeah, it's in the list. Yeah. Impatient. 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 Yep. Harsh. Here's some of you guys haven't mentioned. Grumpy, grouchy, snappish, crabby, pettish, snippish, <coughs> cantankerous, prickly, cross. <coughs> yeah. Hardly touch them and boom. You know someone who's irritable, touchy, and gets provoked quickly. You qualify as irritable. I had to throw them in there. <laughs> yeah, when you said that, I was thinking, I don't think a lot of people in this room would say, Bridget's irritable or touchy, but what would my kids say? <laughs> <laughs> Do I snap too quickly? So self-revealing here, there's times when I'll talk to Maria about my character and, and defensiveness will come up, and I think that's a little prickly, so being honest here. I don't know if that's irritable, but defensive is kind of in on that. I would guess that probably all of us, the moody part that comes out, there's times when we are pretty prickly and provoke pretty easily. So how's quick irritation unloving? Lacks patience. Lack of patience, yeah. Love is what? Very first one. Patience. patience. Long fused. Instead of short fused. Somebody said short fused. Yeah. It immediately assumes the worst motives. I think that's it. You're assuming the worst motive and you're, it's kind of a way of controlling people as well. It's like, like don't come here. Yeah. Don't go there. Yeah. What you're saying <coughs> is wrong, you know, you're, and you can't believe you don't see that kind of. It's also kind of breaking the last aspect of the First Corinthians 13, where you, if you're quick to get irritated, are you really bearing mm -hmm. <laughs> in that moment or yeah. even furthermore endearing and all those in between? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's easy to say, well, you pushed my button. I mean, if somebody says something, you get irritated. Well, it was his fault because he shouldn't have said that to me. Yeah. Well, no, you shouldn't have taken offense because, again, 
he may have been right. How, how did that feel? <laughs> and wow, you know what? Yeah. If you're around people, you know which buttons to push to get yes. provoked, right? also get sharper when you're irritable. At least my yep. tongue gets sharper when oh. I'm irritable. <laughs> Marcy said your tongue gets sharper when yes. you get irritable. I don't know if yes. you heard that. It's back. not edifying. Very hard to keep a filter on what should be said and what should not be said. But you're justified, right? <laughs> right? You know, you just think, yeah, say right. whatever. You going to say something wrong? I mean, I can get sarcastic and start <laughs> kind of cutting and making fun of people, but I'm just joking, you know? <laughs> but I'm irritated. I'm irritated by your, what you're doing. So I'm going to say something and... Knock you down because... Yeah. <laughs> I think you have two. There's the quick fuse where anything sets you off, or there's like the slow boil over where it's like, I'm just taking it, taking it. Don't, don't ever discuss something that did bother you. You just hold it in until the smallest thing finally just boils over the top and then everything explodes as opposed to you know something that you heard and you are trying to be loving so you just hold it in instead of like peacefully talking about an issue you just hold it in until finally it all boils over and you don't even like the thing that boiled you over maybe wasn't what you really were angry with in the first place. I agree yeah. with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's called the Thumas anger, the volcano. Mm -hmm. It blows, mm -hmm. it goes yeah. big time. It comes from a word <clears throat> provoke does at the point of, toward a certain point, sharp, inside, irritate. To have a fit kind of attack. A convulsion in which self-control is lost. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't have a fit. So I think what you're talking about, Jack, you gotta you gotta cover those sins with love. And sometimes there are times too. Peacefully, lovingly, rightfully talk about conflicts that may be going on. The heart of the word Conveys, conveys the semantic force, semantic force up to exasperate, irritate. Has metaphorical extensions of to make sharp, to make pointed, to make acid. Virtually every lexicon and primary source indicates a notion of reaching a level of exasperation. English Peck combines the same range of nuances as the Greek. Sometimes something between irritation and anger. I thought that was kind of good, which takes offense because one's self-regard has been dented wounded or punctured by some sharp point. Love, Paul urges, does not become exasperated into pick, partly because patience delays exasperation and partly because lack of self-interest diverts a sense of self-importance away from reacting on the grounds of wounded pride. It's not embittered by injuries, whether real or supposed. And I like that last sentence because 
I believe this, this is true myself. Sometimes we think there was injury intended or there was some kind of sharpness to something. We read people wrong. We take offense when there really wasn't any there. So I think a lot of real offenses are, less, there's less of them than we think. Many of them are supposed or imagined offenses. People didn't really intend it. What we do to someone when we, when we impugn their motives is we actually kind of slander them. It's actually a slanderous thing, something to be careful about. This word's only used one other time in the New Testament. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked over and over again and again within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So that's a positive connotation as well. Like he was provoked over, he was poked, um, irritated over the idolatry in the city. Used 45 times in the Old Testament. I just gave one example here. Remember, <clears throat> this is out of Deuteronomy 9.7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath the wilderness from the day that you left the lands of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So it's talking about the Israelites from the time they left Egypt until the time when Moses wrote this, when they were on the other side of the Jordan looking across at the land, you have been a people that's provoked the Lord your God to wrath. A couple of proverbs that help us deal with irritation. The vexation of a fool is known at once. So if you think about, if you're an easily irritated person, you're actually a fool. I'm just going to be blunt. That's what Proverbs says. Your vexation is immediately known. And then a fool gives full vent to his spirit. But a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 29.11 So it may not be wrong to have some provocation or irritation. It's how you handle it and in what light you uh, express that, how you control that. Love diminishes that and covers it. Henry Drummond writes, the peculiarity of ill temper is that it is the voice, vice of the virtuous is often the one blot on an otherwise noble character. I thought that was a good point. Uh, you know men who are all but perfect and women who would be entirely perfect but for an easily ruffled, quick-tempered, or touchy disposition. I thought that was worth putting in. It's, it's one of those that's hard to control. It really, when you're provoked, when you're somebody points something sharp at you. Stephen Cole writes that selfless love does not have a hair-trigger temper. Some people make everyone around them walk on eggshells. Wow. Like, oh. They're easily offended. One little thing that doesn't go their way and kaboom, they use their temper to intimidate and punish, and I would say control as well. Like, back off. When you confront them, they say, sure, I have a bad temper, but I get it all out, and it's over in a few minutes, so it's a bomb. But look at the devastation it leaves behind. When you're angry, usually you're not loving. So I think that's a true statement. When you're angry, you're not loving. So opposites of antonyms. There are antonyms here for that irritable person. What would be kind of demeanor, what kind of character would you notice in somebody who's not 
heretofore. Long suffering. Long suffering. Yeah. Long fused. Kind of go back to that. Love is patient. Gentle. Gentle. Somebody else say something? Congenial. Mm hmm. It's a good one. Gracious. I had genial down, congenials. Go ahead, Heather. Gracious. Gracious. Again, gracious, another word kind of for love. Mm -hmm. Grace, charity. So what Marcy said, kind of gracious words come out of your mouth. It's uplifting instead of mm -hmm. not good stuff. Pleasant and joyful. Pleasant, yeah. Pleasant person. Joyful. Good tempered. Warm. Warm. Sweet. Friendly. Affable. Those, that kind of a person draws people right that's a person easy to talk to it's the walk on eggshells kind of person that like <clears throat> hmm, stay away from them so that's how your influence grows as you love in a christ-like way is it's attractive to be around people like that Philippians 4, 5 says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness or your forbearance be known to all men. I think I'll take just a minute here and read from Okay, so how do some people justify being irritable? They justify it by blaming it on their circumstances or on other people. They excuse or minimize it by saying that they get over it quickly. Like, well, yeah, I blew up, but I, I get right over it. They defend themselves by saying, I just can't help it, that's just the way I am. Some people will use their, this is the way I was made kind of thing. Might be but that's no excuse. We all have predispositions towards certain sinfulness. They minimize the seriousness of what they're doing by saying, what did you expect? That's the way my parents were. In essence, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It was their fault. Uh, they excuse it by heaping insults upon themselves. I'm just no good. I'm just weak. Others may be able to be uncontentious, gentle, considerate, meek, and smithy, but I just can't be those things. All kind of excuse making. At the end of every chapter, Wayne Mack has some questions, and I like this one. How would you rate yourself in terms of your gentleness? I did this for the, for the next one, but not this one. How would you rate yourself in terms of your gentleness or irritability quotient? So here you go. There's four possibilities. I am seldom irritated or annoyed. Not more than once every two weeks, he said. You get three points for that. 
I am occasionally irritated or provoked, probably once every week or every couple of days. You get two points if that's you. Wait a minute, I need to back up. I am never irritated or annoyed. You get three points for that. So I was wrong on that. I'm seldom irritated or annoyed. That's every two weeks. You get two points for that. I'm occasionally irritated or provoked, probably once every week or every couple of days. That's a point. I'm very easily and frequently irritated or provoked, probably at least once every day. You get zero points for that. Check the accuracy of your rating by having other family members or friends rate you in this irritability inventory. <laughs> what? You guys are really... <laughs> <laughs> I love it when Becky does that in Bible study. Ask your husband. You know, for scoring like dog, we're all doing really well. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty good to ask somebody else on this one. They might Am I a person that you have to walk on eggshells around? I like this Wayne Mack. He says this several times in this book. Please remember as you reflect on the love principle presented in this chapter, the purpose of evaluation application is not to discourage or destroy you, but to motivate you to see the constant need of the cross and how much we owe to Jesus. Without him, we'd never make it. But praise God, we are not without him. And then to motivate us to understand our constant daily need of grace. And to cause us to understand we must and can by His grace put off from our lives the unlove that is displeasing to God and put in our lives the love that is beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. So I love the way He approaches that. This isn't to destroy you, but it's to direct you forward to the type of love that was most displayed in our Savior. Okay, I think we've got, yeah, we've got time. We can get through. Number nine, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Other translations, it does not brood over injury. It does not store up grievances. Love does not count up wrongs that have been done. Love is not resentful. Love keeps no record of being wronged. How good are you at forgetting slights or wrongs, real or perceived? <coughs> Nobody wants to be public with that. If you catch yourself using old ammo on a husband or friend, might not be very good at that. You <laughs> do a whole series of those. Speaking from experience. Yeah. There was an example in the book, I don't know if I recall it exactly, but he said that his husband and wife were in for counseling. The husband said, my wife gets historical on me when we get into conflicts. <laughs> and Wayne Mack said, hysterical? And he said, no, historical. <laughs> has a really good memory of all things I've ever okay is your or let's go to this does God keep a record of your wrongs and your sins 
see some head shaking though. If you, Lord, were to keep account of guilty deeds, Lord, who could stand? Obviously doesn't. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Thankfully, Psalm 103.12, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That's Psalms 103, you said? 103.12. 103.12, thanks. Worked with a cattle buying company out of South Texas, and his name of his business was the East West Land and Livestock. He was a Christian, and that was his theme verse, Psalm 103, 12. Is your Christ likeness and godliness lived out by throwing away your wrongs ledger book that we <coughs> store in our mind? Are we good at throwing them away to the point that as far as the east is from the west? Which, if you go that way east and that way west, far enough, you'll, you'll just never meet. They get a long ways apart. This is actually a word that means taking into account. It means to think about something in a detailed and logical, logos manner. The idea is to put together with one's mind or to occupy oneself with reckonings. In this case, wrongs done to oneself. Love does not keep an inventory or an accounting of the wrongs done. This word gives a verbal portrait of a bookkeeper who flips a page of his ledger to reveal what has been received and spent. He's able to give an exact account and provide an itemized list. That is good practice in accounting, but not in interpersonal relationships. To do so does not reflect spirit-filled love. That in the book, and you guys probably have this from life as well, he actually talked about a wife, yeah, it was a wife that came in with 13 years of wrongs that her husband had done. He actually had a ledger of wrongs, yeah. That only 13. <laughs> she's very historical, maybe not. And the husband, he gave some examples of some husbands too, as well. It was pretty incredible. Actually, we're keeping records, a diary of wrongs done to them. That's not going to be a very warm marriage for sure. Love keeps no account book for the entry of wrongs on the debit side, which are eventually be balanced on the credit side with payments received and satisfaction obtained for these wrongs. Love forgets to charge any wrong done to itself. It's neither enraged at the moment, nor does it hold a grudge and vindictiveness afterwards. Oh, wow, wow that's kind of an ouchie right there. Chrysostom has well said, as a spark falls into the sea and does not harm the sea, so harm may be done to a loving soul and is soon quenched without disturbing the soul. I thought that was a really good word picture of how we should deal with wrongs done to us. It's a very verb used to describe the pardoning act of God. <clears throat> he does not impute to us our guilt. For the sake of time, Psalm 32, 2, got some listed there. Blessed, happy is the man 
to whom the Lord does not impute, that's that word here, charge his account with iniquity. <coughs> Psalm 32 2 is quoted in Romans 4 8. 2 Corinthians 5 19, God was in Christ, not imputing or accounting their trespasses to them. Okay, God does not impute our trespasses to us or write them down a ledger sheet. Well, what does He impute to us? Christ's righteousness. His righteousness. And those are in, <coughs> those are all over. Romans 4, 6 through 11, several accounts of that. 2 Corinthians again. James 2.23, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Try that one with your spouse, with your child, with that person that pricks and annoys you, irritates you, causes you harm, wrongs you. Scriptural and godly responses to wrong suffered by the one who has love. Never pays back evil for evil, Romans 12, 17. Never takes their own revenge, Romans 12, 19. Never lets the sun go down in their anger, Ephesians 4, 26. Does not hold on to their malice, but lets go of it, Ephesians 4, 31. <coughs> Does not fret over evildoers, nor is envious of wrongdoers, Psalm 37, 1. There's three questions that Wayne Mack asked in his book, what happens when a person fails to love in this way? What do you guys think? What happens to a person that fails to love in this way? What will they do? Bitter. bitter. That's it. You'll become a bitter person. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If you fail to love in this way, you will be harsh with your wife, men, husbands. That kind of treatment is opposite to the right kind of love. So bitterness, the word literally means to cut or to prick. That brings intense grief or misery. It's contrasted with the word sweet, pleasant, or desirable. Second question, how does bitterness, which is the inevitable result of keeping a record of wrong suffered, manifest itself? I want to read a few of these. Bitterness manifests itself in acts of vengeance. It manifests itself in withdrawal or avoidance. It manifests itself in outburst of anger. <clears throat> it brings about biting sarcasm or snide remarks. Condescending communication. Bitterness, and this, I think this is this is a good one here. Bitterness may manifest itself in fault-finding and censoriousness over even small offenses. So you have this seemingly small offense that's met with this, <clears throat> this um, unbalanced, over-the-top fault-finding or response. <coughs> Bitterness may manifest itself in suspicion and mistrust. Uh, manifest itself in impatience, manifest itself in disrespect, <coughs> manifest itself in rebellion toward or abuse or misuse of authority. I thought this one was 
was a good one too. Bitterness may manifest itself in depression. It can quickly steal your joy. Bitterness manifests itself in a lack of friends, close associates. People avoid you or don't want to be with you. It's true of bitter people. Bitterness uh, manifests itself in a lack of assurance of salvation or at least a lack of a sense of the presence of God or closeness to God. And it may manifest itself in a sense of guilt and shame as in Matthew 6, 14-15. And ultimately, bitterness will manifest itself in a lack of fruitfulness in your Christian life and ministry to others. But how can bitterness be prevented and defeated? You must be in continual prayer that God would increase our ability to love in this way and eradicate any trace of bitterness in your heart. We must pursue love. And that's what 1 Corinthians 14.1 says. Right after Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13, the very first thing is pursue love. I think that is the, that is the key. We must constantly remember how gracious and patient God has been and is being with us. It's hard to be bitter toward others when we consider how merciful he has been with us. I think that is a key. It's important to remember that there is never a day in our lives when we are so good that we don't need God's grace and never a day in our lives when we are so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. He's got some other, other ones here, but we're rapidly running out of time and in order to be loving and considerate to our worship team and those of you who have different things, kept you a minute or two long. We'll pick up some more of these next week.